You're listening to a Garden City Chapel podcast. For a complete list of podcasts, visit our website at www.gardencitychapel.com. Thank you, Dylan and Joseph. Invite you to open your Bibles to Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16. I want to also recognize a group that's been worshiping with us all summer, the group from Campus Outreach from Minnesota. Raise your hands where they're like all over. Is this your last Sunday? Some of them are on the, on the front row. Uh, they've been with us since really, I guess, the first of June, and uh, they're heading back. Uh, they've been down here all summer working and uh, doing ministry. Uh, in our midst, and so they've been worshiping with us. Uh, th- this is about a third of the group. They kind of split up and uh, go to some different churches on Sunday morning. So uh, we've enjoyed having y'all here. Thank y'all for being here. Hope some of you will be back next summer. But just wanted to say a thank you to them and let y'all know about them. So pray for them as they head back uh, this week and for school that will be starting pretty soon in August. So I uh, pray for them. The title of the message is Evangelism is Personal, and, and truly it is. I, I don't know what your story is. I want you to think for a minute, who impacted you for the cause of Christ? Who did God use in your life to help lead you to himself? And for a lot of you, it may be kind of like me. It was really several people in my life, but I finally came to a point with my pastor at my church where I prayed a prayer asking Jesus Christ to be my Lord and Savior, where I acknowledged that I was a sinner and I needed a Savior. So for some of you, it may sound something like that. For some of you, it may have been on a retreat. There's some that I talked to, I know, that have happened here at the chapel. We've seen young people and even adults come to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior, even while they're here. It may have been at a, at a large event. It may have been at, at some kind of a crusade or revival it, or it may have just been one-on-one with somebody that shared their heart with you and shared the story of Jesus Christ and you responded. The next question I got then for you, not to ask answer out loud, but just to think, who have you told the good news? When's the last time that you shared the good news of Jesus Christ? And I want to say, sadly, far too, too believers have ever done that. Bill Bright says that it's about 86% of Folks who call themselves Christians have never told anybody else about their faith. And i got to ask, why is that? In fact, if you're in a church, if you're in leadership in a church, the people that complain the loudest are the ones who've never told anybody about Jesus. And so maybe that's a good question sometimes. If somebody's just really getting on your case and, uh, you know, making life difficult, just ask them that question. You'll probably lose your job over it, but ask them that question. When's the last time you told somebody about Jesus? I know you don't like the color of the carpet, but when's the last time you told somebody about Jesus? Because that's what some people focus on, and we're going to see that in this passage this morning. It's amazing to me, this idea of evangelism being personal. I read a story and was reminded of it this week. Most of you have heard of Billy Graham. Billy Graham does crusades, has spoken to millions of people all over the world. How many of you know his brother-in-law, Leighton Ford? I've been at Crusades with Leighton. Raise your hand if you've ever heard of Leighton Ford. A few of you. From North Carolina. Leighton Ford tells a story in his biography about a revival that hit, or a crusade, outdoor event that he was speaking at. And the next night, his brother-in-law was going to preach, Billy Graham. 
Well, Billy came the night that Leighton was speaking, but he wore a hat and sunglasses so that nobody would really recognize him. And he sat in the back on the field, but in the back of the crowd. And when the invitation was given, there was an old man sitting next to him. And he turned to the old man and he said, sir, would you like to respond to this message? I'll walk down front with you. And the guy thought for a minute. He thought, no, I think I'll wait. The big guns are coming tomorrow night. And I think sometimes our excuse for not doing evangelism is we just think we're little shots. We're not the big guns. We're going to leave that up to the preacher. We're going to leave it up to Billy Graham or some revivalist or evangelist. No. What did Jesus say? In Acts chapter 1, he told his disciples, and these were little shots, by the way. Some of them became big shots later on, but they were little shots. Nobody ever heard of them. Jesus said to them what? He said, you are going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. And folks, that's where we are now in Acts chapter 16. They've taken this message to Jerusalem, but because of persecution and other, other things, they've taken it now outside of Israel. They've taken it to a man on the road back to Ethiopia. They've taken it to people in Asia Minor. Today we're going to see it actually reach Europe. And from then on it continued to spread. You know, it's easy to determine when something is on fire, when something is aflame, because it catches everything else around it on fire. The problem with churches that don't do evangelism and people that don't do evangelism is that their fire went out. Don't allow yourself to be a Christian for so long that you've lost your joy over being a believer. You've received good news. That's what evangelism is. Telling other people good news. Let's look at this passage. In Acts chapter 16, I'm going to begin reading in verse 14. There's going to be three people that we're going to be introduced to this morning. The first one we find in this first verse. A woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening. And the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. And it happened that as we were going to a place of prayer, a slave girl having a spirit of divination met us, who was bringing her masters much profit by fortune telling. Following after Paul and us, she kept crying out, saying, These men are bondservants of the Most High God who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. She continued doing this for many days. But Paul was greatly annoyed and turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out at that very moment. But when her masters saw that their profit, their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. And when they had brought them to the chief magistrates, they said, these men are throwing our city into confusion, being Jews. And are proclaiming customs which is not lawful for us to accept or to observe being Romans. The first of the two people we see is, I I classify her as a seeker. Her name is Lydia. And there's a few things we know about Lydia. Lydia was from the city of, or from the city of Thyatira in a region called Lydia. And it may very well be that her name became Lydia. That's just what she became known as because that's where she was from. We have a guy on our staff this summer that people call Georgia. Guess why they do that? 
He's from Georgia. How about that? So because he's from Georgia, they call him Georgia. And it may very well be that this lady, because she was from Lydia, that was just her name. So this was a lady referred to as Lydia from Asia Minor. She's a seller of purple fabrics. Another thing we know about her is apparently she was very wealthy because only wealthy people wore purple. Because to get purple ink, purple dye, you had to either get it from the gland of a shellfish... (laughs) You had to go milk shellfish, or you got it from a root of a very obscure plant. And so nobody wore purple fabrics unless they were kings, unless they were royalty. And so she apparently was pretty wealthy, and we we know she apparently had a big house. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But here's the important thing. She was a worshiper of God. Now, she was not yet a proselyte. She hadn't been converted to Judaism yet. In fact, the word for worship is not the one most often used, but it's a word for worship meaning she had a reverence, a respect for the things of God. So here's what Paul does. Paul enters this region. Paul, if you read earlier in the passage, has had a vision. A man has spoken to him in a dream and said, come up here to Macedonia to help us out. So he goes into Philippi. He gets You can trace kind of his pathway. In fact, let, let me show you. On a map, kind of where we are. I've got my laser pointer out. Down here, see that bottom right, is Jerusalem. Okay? That's where the messages come from. Way over here in, right up there, top top left. I don't even know if you can see the laser pointer up there. How about right up there, top left, see Philippi. That's where they are now. See how far the message has gone? It's actually going to go a little further than that because on his next missionary journey, he finally gets to Rome, which is going to be the end of his life. But so we've gotten that far away from Jerusalem. And, but it's interesting to note that this woman is not from Europe. She's from Macedonia. Excuse me, she's from Thyatira and she's gotten to Macedonia. But here's the important thing to know. Paul would normally go into a region and he would look for a synagogue. And that's where he would always start. And from there, he would kind of form a base and would kind of spread out from there. Well, obviously, there was no synagogue in Philippi. How do we know that? Because it's not mentioned. Paul deviates from the norm and does something different. In fact, there's no synagogue. He had just heard on the outskirts of town, there's a place of worship. And literally, it may have even been an outdoor place of worship just by the banks of a river. And it was some women that gathered together to pray. In order for a town to have a synagogue, there had to be ten Jewish men who were heads of households to establish a synagogue. So there was no no such thing at this point in Philippi. This is how far away from Jerusalem they are. You're in Europe. And so he finds these women, and one of them named Lydia, and it says that she was listening to him as he spoke. In fact, the word for speak really... Paul wasn't really preaching a sermon because it was just a handful of women. Apparently, he was sitting down having a conversation. And it said, as she listened to him speak, the Lord opened her heart. Isn't it interesting that here's a woman that has come hundreds of miles to hear the gospel. Paul had been through her region of Thyatira, the region of Lydia. He'd been through near that area, but God through circumstances, takes her from her hometown up to Philippi. And that's where she's finally going to get to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. And the Lord opens her heart to receive the gospel message and to respond. 
literally to, to acknowledge that this God that I've been studying about, this God that I have a reverence for, I finally understand the rest of the story. And she responds. In fact, it says she's baptized. In fact, her whole household is baptized. Now, why did that happen? It's because the whole household got to hear the gospel. And a lot of commentators think she probably, because she was this businesswoman, probably her household didn't include husband or children. It included her slaves. And so her entire household is evangelized because of this witness that goes up into Philippi. And then she does this. She invites them to her home. She says, if you have... Judge me faithful. If you understand that I truly am a worshiper and follower now of Jesus Christ, would you please do me the honor of coming to my home? And we believe this is the site of the first church in Philippi. Paul and Silas at first really really didn't want to do this. And at this point, we know that Luke and Timothy are also with them. And however many others are with them, you know, at first thought, no, we're really not going to do that. But she, she continued and she finally prevailed on them. She finally compelled them to come to her home. And we believe this became the base, the church, the first church in Philippi. Let's look at the second evidence of evangelism, and that is the slave, slave girl. Let me tell you her story. Paul and Barnabas, after, excuse me, Paul and Silas, after this experience they've had with Lydia, every day they'd get up instead of going to the synagogue, which didn't exist, they'd go back to this place of prayer. And on their way, this slave girl started following them. And the slave girl is crying out. In fact, the word means to croak like a raven. So I don't know if it was a little... That may have been annoying enough, just the, the voice that she's using. But she's crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God, and they are proclaiming to us the way of salvation. And she did that for many days. Now, why it took Paul this long to get annoyed by it, I don't know. In fact, I asked the question this week, why was he annoyed? She's telling people the truth, right? Well, Paul recognized that she had a spirit of divination. She had an evil spirit. In fact, the word used for spirit, a couple of ways to translate it. One is a python spirit, which, which goes back to this python that supposedly um, guarded this oracle of Delphi. And in Greek mythology, uh, he was slain by Apollo. So that's kind of where the name came from. But it also meant ventriloquist. So maybe that she was able to actually use ventriloquism to throw her voice or something of that nature, whichever it was, it began to annoy Paul. And I think the main reason that it annoyed him is this. Even though what she was saying sounded right, Paul recognized the foothold this could give for Satan. You know, if you travel around for a while speaking the language, people think you're part of the group. And as soon as they think you're part of the leadership team, you can then start saying things that aren't true. But people have already bought it hook, line, and sinker by that point. And again, leaders in churches, that's why we've got to be careful. Who stands up in front of people to speak? People that we give that kind of leadership role to because they kind of come with the name that's associated with our ministry. And so if we're not careful, we're putting people up in front of folks who aren't telling the truth. And that's what this girl at this point is telling the truth. But Paul finally gets annoyed, and I don't know why he hadn't thought of this earlier, but he basically looks at her, but he speaks to the Spirit and he says, come out. And it literally come out, came out at that very moment. Well, here's what happens after that. Her, her masters, and it's interesting to notice, the word for masters is the word kurios. It's the word that we use for Jesus Christ being our Lord and Savior. Our master, supreme in authority, is Christ. Her master was not Christ. It was these men who were using her to make money. 
And so because of her fortune telling and making money for them, they were really kind of happy until she lost the spirit. The spirit has been cast out of her. And they are so upset about that because they realize their hope of profit was gone. In fact, Luke uses kind of a turn of a phrase here. When it says the spirit came out, it literally means to issue forth or away. And he uses the same word to describe their profit has also been issued forth or away. Not only is the spirit gone, the money's gone. And it's amazing how some people, their spiritual life is so wrapped up in money. Is money evil? No. But it, the Bible says the root of all evil is the love of money. For these men, they loved money. They loved money so much, they were, they were more concerned with the fact they lost profit over this woman losing her spirit of divination than they were the fact the woman had a bad spirit. And we don't see them rejoicing over the fact she's been set free from this evil spirit. No, they're upset because they're going to lose money. So what do they do? They grab Paul and Silas. They don't bother Luke. They don't bother Timothy or any of the other ones because those were not formerly Jews. Those were not. Those were Gentiles. They drag them up before the magistrates. And they basically say, hey, these two men are throwing our city into confusion, literally to disturb holy. They brought them into the marketplace, literally the city square where judgment would take place. And they brought them up in front of these magistrates to be a Roman province meant that you'd have two people appointed from Rome to be these magistrates. And they would render verdicts and judgments. And so they brought them before them and they never one time mentioned, hey, we're losing money because of this. Because they realize the guy may not care about that. Their motive's money, but now they change it to, hey, two problems we got with these men. They're, they're upsetting the city. They're throwing our city into confusion being Jews. First instance, I guess, of anti-Semitic uh, feelings. But they throw him into, into confusion being Jews. No mention of the economic impact. And also, they're proclaiming something that's not lawful for us to observe. So that's the two charges that are brought against Paul and Silas. Well, the magistrates then take them and strip their clothes from them. They took rods and beat them. And they would carry these bundles of rods that were indications of the authority of the magistrates. So their servants would carry these bundles of rods. And in this case, they unwrapped the bundle and beat Paul and Silas to a pulp with these rods. Then they threw them into jail. In fact, it says not only did they throw them into jail, they threw them into the innermost parts of the jail, into a dungeon. And they chained them, and then they put them in stocks. And these wooden stocks for their feet would be such that it would spread their legs and make it very uncomfortable. So you've just been beaten. You're already uncomfortable. But they place your legs in stocks to make you even more uncomfortable. And what do Paul and Silas do in this condition? They pray and they sing. Now, I'm, I'm just telling you, humanly speaking, if I had just been beaten to a pulp, Place in chains, my feet are in stocks, making me uncomfortable. I might pray, but I'm going to be praying, God, get me out of this. This hurts. But what are they doing? They're singing. And something I want you to see is when your circumstances change, you're still on mission for God. Paul understood. Silas understood. Hey, we came here because a man in a vision told us to come here to help him. We hadn't met the man yet. We're in jail. Wonder who we can witness to in here. Midnight, they're praying and singing. And an earthquake occurs. 
And the thing that happened in the earthquake is the doors rattled and opened, the chains rattled and fell off of their arms and legs. And that's where we pick up with our third guy. Look at verse 27. When the jailer awoke and saw the prison doors opened, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice saying, do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And he called for lights and rushed in and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And after he brought them out, he said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and all your household. So this jailer is awakened by the earthquake, realizes the doors are open, and he knows the penalty for losing prisoners. If you were a guard, if you were in charge of prisoners and your prisoners escaped, you were to receive the same fate that they were to receive. So obviously there were some prisoners, probably not Paul and Silas, but some prisoners in there who, that he knew they're going to be put to death. And maybe it even meant Paul and Silas. And so he thought, I'm not going to go through the public shame of this. I know it's inevitable. I'm just going to end it. So he takes his sword out and is about to kill himself. And Paul says, hey, don't kill yourself. We're all here. We haven't gone anywhere. And the jailer rushes in and it says, falls flat on his face before Paul and Silas and asks this question. What must I do to be saved? Well, the first question you have to ask because commentators ask the question, saved from what? Some commentators think he means saved from the punishment that he's going to receive for the doors being open. That doesn't make sense because nobody's escaped. They're all here. In fact, the word that Paul uses for we're all here means absolutely, positively every single one of us. Nobody's escaped. Which I understand why Paul and Silas didn't run out, but nobody else ran out either. No, I think what he means is this. He'd heard them singing. He'd heard him praying. Perhaps he had heard the message that Paul and Silas had even been speaking in the, in the, on their way to this place of prayer. He knew that these were two people who were telling people the good news of Jesus Christ. A man who had been crucified on a cross. And yet he was God. He rose from the dead three days later. He offered hope of salvation. And so he says, what must I do to be saved? What an awesome question. If you've got your Bibles, I want you to look at Romans. Look at Romans chapter 1 and then Romans chapter 10 as we close by answering that question. What must I do to be saved? Here's the good news. See, this jailer, he wasn't a Jew. He wasn't a God-fearer. He wasn't somebody that had ever worshipped God. He wasn't like Lydia. He was totally lost. Look what Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 16. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And then Romans 10. Give you some context. Let me start with verse 8. 
The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith, which we are preaching. Listen to this, that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus says, Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Greek jailer, what must I do? Believe in your heart. Confess with your mouth. Verse 10, for with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness. And with your mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. And then look at the result. It says that he was baptized, he and his entire household. Did that happen in a brief moment? No, if you go on and read verse 32. After that message, it says they spoke the word of the Lord together with him and all who were in his house. It didn't just mean that because he was the head of the household, everybody's automatically saved. No, they had to come to Christ the same way. They had to believe in their heart. They confessed with their mouth. When you look at a passage like this, you see three people. We see Lydia. God-fearer. That God had to take her hundreds of miles from her home to finally hear the good news. Slave girl. We have no indication from this girl that she came to Christ. My assumption is that she did, but it doesn't say that. It doesn't say she was baptized. It simply says the demon was taken out of her. And we don't hear her speak again. The story turns just to her masters, who are no longer her masters because she's lost the spirit. Then we see the jailer. Isn't it amazing when a jailer comes to Christ to finally realize, you know what? You guys were in prison. You guys were shackled with human shackles. But you truly had been set free because you're a believer. The jailer was the one that had been imprisoned to his sin. He was the one truly that was hopeless because, yes, he might could take their life, but they would live eternity with God, eternally with God. The jailer was the one in prison, and yet that day not only was Paul and Silas set free because he ends up binding up their wounds and setting them free, but he was literally set free by coming to faith in Jesus Christ. So I want to end today with a so what. How do we apply this to us? I think sometimes our fear of evangelism, of telling other people about Jesus is we don't understand what our role in that is. So the first so what today is this. Your job is to be obedient as a witness. God's got to be the one that opens the heart. You don't have the power to open someone's heart to the gospel. God does that. But be obedient when God crosses your path with people who he's already been working on. To be faithful to share the good news. Second thought is this. Your goal is not mere persuasiveness. Your goal is the truth. I think sometimes when we share Christ with people, we think we've got to close the deal. And sometimes, praise God, that happens. Sometimes their heart is open. They respond to the gospel. But that's a God thing that only he can do. There's going to be times that you share your faith and people reject it. And it may be that later they come to Christ or maybe never. But the problem with trying to simply be persuasive is we'll start compromising the truth. And I want you to understand, Jesus, you read the gospel accounts of Christ when he was telling the good news. Not everybody received it. Jesus allowed people to walk away, still hurting. Remember the rich young ruler? Asked basically the same question the jailer did. What must I do to have eternal life? And it said, after Jesus told him what he needed to do, he walked away in pain. 
And his disciples are over there going, oh, wait a minute. Bring him back. Let's compromise. This guy's got a lot of money. We could use him to fund the ministry. But Jesus didn't ever do that. He simply told the truth. And he let the Lord be the one responsible for the results. Third thought. You can't force people to drink living water. But you can live a life that makes them thirsty. Let me explain what I mean by that. Listen, live your life in such a way that people see that there is something in you, there's something about you that makes them want that. The shame of it is there's some people who have rejected Christ because all they've ever seen is people who call themselves Christians who aren't living the Christian life. I mean, people literally, if they can look at you and say, if that's what it means to be a Christian, I don't want any part of it. If what they're seeing isn't true, then we need to change that. Listen, if they reject Christ knowing the truth, so be it. But I sure don't want them to reject Christ because they never saw the authentic Jesus Christ. So you, you can't force them to drink, but you can live a life that makes them thirsty. And last... I've already alluded to this. When you're on mission for God, circumstances may change, but you're still on mission. See, I mean, Paul and Silas could have said when, the, when they approached this lady from Lydia, you know, Lydia comes up and they thought, no, wait a minute, we're on mission for God because we had a vision. A man told us to come up here. In fact, let's just be honest. This is not politically correct. But in that day and age, Jews didn't care a whole lot about women. In fact, the strictest of Jews said, I would rather have the, the word of God burned than to deliver it to a woman. Not politically correct. And some people think, you know, Paul doesn't like women. No, listen, the first European convert was a woman. Paul realized those barriers have been removed. And he could have said, no, wait a minute, I'm on mission to see a man about this. I can't talk to you. No, he realized, listen, I'm on mission from God. Circumstances may change, but I'm still on mission. In fact, could I just be honest with you? I think sometimes if God told us ten steps down the road, it might scare us so bad we never take the first step. What other circumstance changed? They got thrown in prison. Their situation looked hopeless. And if you don't realize you're on mission for God, you could kind of think, well, I think God's lost us. God must have gone to sleep or something. No, God knew exactly where they were. And they were responding as men who recognized, I'm on mission for God. Because if you don't get that, and you're in prison in stocks after having been beaten half to death, you're going to be saying, woe is me, and thinking twice about telling anybody else about Jesus. But they knew, no, wait a minute, we're on mission from God. And He's in charge, we're not. In fact, these jailers aren't in charge. Those magistrates that threw us in here don't know what they're getting themselves into. In fact, the whole trial was unlawful. You read further into the passage when they find out that Paul was a Roman citizen, what they did was illegal to Paul. In fact, they, they come up later and say, why didn't you tell us that? Well, maybe it was because you were beating us and weren't listening. You didn't give us an opportunity. But men and women understand something. When you're on mission from God, circumstances may change. But you're still on mission. And God's still in control. Let's pray together. Bow your heads with me. Father, God, thank you for the power of Jesus Christ.
and to recognize that our mission hasn't changed. You told the disciples, you're going to receive power, and after that you will be my witnesses. That is still our mission. Our mission is to glorify Christ. And in so doing, others will be drawn to Him. God, thank You that it's not our job to persuade, it's our job to speak the truth. It's not our job to save people. We can't do that. We can't open a heart. But You can. And so God, help us to understand, even as we walk out of this place today, and wherever we go today, and tomorrow, and the next day, would we wake up every morning freshly reminded that we're on mission for God. We love you.